0: I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin, spies and mobsters, and so many traitors! Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail.
1: This episode of Muller She Wrote is brought to you by Zola. Zola makes wedding planning easier and less stressful by having your wedding website, registry, invites, and guest list manager all in one place. Go to zola.com ag to sign up and get your free personalized paper sample. Then use code SAVE50 to get 50% off your save the dates. Thanks to Noom for supporting Muller She Wrote. Getting in shape isn't about a number on the scale. Noom helps you develop a new relationship with food, build healthier habits, and feel better about yourself. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com ag. And thanks to Noemi for supporting Muller She Wrote. Noemi designs and manufactures everything in-house and sells directly to consumers with a lifetime warranty and free shipping. Go to hellonoemi.com ag and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code ag.
2: This is Jack
0: Bryan, the co-writer and director of Active Measures, and you are listening to Mother She Wrote. Lucky
1: you. Hello and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., and with me today is Amanda Reeder. Hello. Tits McGee is on vacation in New York. She'll be back on the 8th. That's Jordan Coburn. Happy New Year (laughs) to you all. Um, We have a big show coming back from the holidays, uh, including an interview with Uncle Blazer about the Muller cases that were argued in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals last Friday, what we call the Super Bowl of the Separation of Powers. And joining us later in the show will be Robert Denault. He's the author of the forensic newsnet story about Russia Bank VTB's connections to a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank and how they're involved in Trump loans. That story got a lot of attention over the weekend. You'll want to stick around for that. Uh, and we also have some sabotage and of course the Fantasy Indictment League. But uh, before we get to the headlines of the week, it's time for my favorite segment, Corrections. It's a
4: mistake. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry.
1: I made a mistake. And we only have one correction from the holiday break. Mm -hmm. So when we aren't here, we make fewer mistakes. (laughs) <laughs> isn't that great uh, this is from Sarah Hoffman she says love the show hello A.G. Mandy and Jordan on this past Sunday's Mueller she wrote it was stated Kavanaugh had never done anything good but wait he did one good thing he wrote the majority opinion tossing out the most recent conviction of Curtis Flowers the subject of season two's In the Dark podcast uh, I added a link to the article about the overturned conviction if you haven't heard the podcast or become knowledgeable about the story story, I highly recommend it sweet I'll so, tweet that out yeah definitely uh, I guess he did do one good thing hmm Uh, he likes beer (laughs) Uh, that's our correction if you have any corrections uh, now that we're back and talking um, head to (laughs) MuellerSheWrote.com click on contact select corrections build us a compliment sandwich we'll get it right eventually we promise and now uh, let's hit the headlines with just the facts All right, so there's some big news out in the Ukraine impeachment scandal, including some new emails released in a FOIA case, and then some more information from the New York Times about the timeline for the hold on Ukraine military aid. So let's talk about the emails. In an exclusive from Just Security, uh, the Center Center for Public Integrity watchdog received about 300 pages of emails in a Freedom of Information Act request lawsuit. Uh, And as we know, we got the first batch December 12th and the second batch on December 20th. But most of those pages were redacted. Well, over the holiday, Just Security somehow got unredacted copies of these emails spanning from June to October, and they reveal the alarm bells set off by the Pentagon that holding, withholding the aid would violate the Impoundment Control Act. And uh, that's the law that requires the president to spend money appropriated by Congress, as was the case with the military aid to Ukraine. So these now unredacted emails make it clear that the hold was 100% about Trump himself, Uh, about what he wanted and how he could personally benefit. And in an email from Michael Duffy uh, from the Office of Management and Budget to Elaine McCusker, the Pentagon comptroller, he said that the hold came directly from Trump, quote, clear direction from POTUS to continue the hold. What was most interesting is what the Department of Justice chose to redact. When it handed these emails over, because now we can compare them side by side. Right. What was redacted and what wasn't Mm -hmm. because the Center for Public Integrity has the redacted stuff. Just security has the unredacted stuff. And among some more of the questionable redactions is when they blacked out a question from McCusker. That's the Pentagon comptroller to Mm -hmm. the Office of Management and Budget asking if the hold had gone through the Pentagon's general counsel. Uh, There was also a letter from the Deputy Secretary of Defense to the Office of Management and Budget warning. They had repeatedly advised the Office of Management and Budget that holding the aid beyond August 19th would jeopardize the department's ability to obligate the funding prudently and fully. And uh, that entire letter was redacted. (laughs) So... That's what uh, Barr decided to redact when they handed over the stuff for the FOIA request. They also blacked out a McCusker email to the Office of Management and Budget saying legal teams had discussed the hold and its potential violation of the law. That's the Impoundment Control Act. Along with another warning from the Department of Defense that the hold could prevent them from being obligated at all. And uh, Natasha Bertrand points out um, on Twitter that all of those warnings, after all those warnings, uh, An Office of Management and Bush Budget General Counsel told the GAO that at no point did the Department of Defense Office of General Counsel indicate to OMB that, as a matter of law, the, appointment, the apportionments would prevent the DOD from being able to obligate the funds before the end of the fiscal year. So the DOJ went out of its way to make all of us think that the Pentagon never warned the Office of Management and Budget about mm-hmm. the Impoundment Act, mainly because that's one of their talking points, that's one of their defenses. And the Office of Management and Budget spokesperson told CNN last week... There was an agreement at every step of the way between DOD and OMB about the withholding of the aid. Mm-hmm. And all of these redacted letters and warnings show that there was not. It was, it, In fact, it was
3: discussed in detail to the extent of, is this legal? <clears throat>
1: yes, multiple times. Yeah, multiple and times. as we know, we had five Pentagon officials mm-hmm. uh, resign. We had two Office of Management and Budget officials resign over this, mm-hmm. over the uh, a possible violation of the Impoundment Control Act, and that they wouldn't write a legal opinion that said that this was okay and again these are potential witnesses yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, and and witnesses that schiff has called Mm uh and and esper who Mm -hmm. uh, sec def secretary of defense and bolton and um pompeo actually went to the oval office and said trump you can't hold this aid the lawyers are saying at the pentagon mccusker comptroller they're saying that if you do we won't be able to get this aid out in time and that's against the law And Trump continued the hold. And now we have the email showing from Michael Duffy to McCusker that the hold is coming directly from the president after he was warned multiple times about the illegality of withholding the aid. And also, we still haven't um, we still haven't had any
3: anything from Bolton,
1: right? No, he's still staying quiet. No, He just goes, I know a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm, Uh, I'm mm -hmm. writing a book. That's pretty much twist at this point. pretty much what he said. And then we know that uh, oh, uh, last Friday, Judge Leon dismissed the Kupperman case, mm-hmm. which is the thing Bolton was sort of counting on to not have to go and testify. right. But that's been dismissed as moot, so now they can no longer use the excuse. Well, it's going through the courts. I can't testify. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> they should be able to rely solely on the McGann. Uh, finding that that he has to testify now of course that's been appealed and it will it was heard last Friday we're going to talk to Uncle blazer about that mm-hmm. uh, later the McGann case uh, it will uh, probably be uh, you know um, appealed to Supreme Court we'll hear a decision from the DC Circuit Court of Appeals probably in I don't know six to eight weeks or something like that uh, and then of course he'll have a little bit of time to file a cert uh, with with SCOTUS and then SCOTUS will decide whether or not they're going to hear it. We might not get a decision on McGann until June or July. But the already written decision should be enough Mm -hmm. to to get Bolton to testify. And also the fact that he knows all this shit that he went that he was at that July 10th meeting when Mm -hmm. he when he told Sun like, hey, you can't do that. I'm not going to be part of this drug deal with Giuliani or when he went to the president with Esper, the secretary of defense at Pentagon, secretary of defense, secretary Mm -hmm. of defense. (laughs) Yes and and uh, pompeo secretary of state and and told trump you can't do this and like said release the aid release the bats mm-hmm. and and he wouldn't do it and continued the hold and now we have the email showing that he is specifically the one who who was you know requiring the hold and we have we have these FOIA requests are making that even clearer.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what we still haven't seen or anything anything from Mulvaney, mm-hmm. between Mulvaney and Trump, uh, in writing that says why mm-hmm. he was doing this. And we probably aren't going to see anything like that because, the, first of all, Trump doesn't email. Second of all, we would just need Mulvaney's testimony. And he said he's not going to testify. Because so, he thinks we should get over it. Yeah, we should get over it. Yeah. Although he has come out and said yes there was a quid pro quo uh that was still a stunning moment in american history so do we really need his testimony um (laughs) and that i mean that's that was one of the bases of which we impeached trump in the first place was because trump asked for investigations from ukraine on television and china and uh Mulvaney said yeah that that's what the withhold of the aid was that's a quid pro quo we do it all the time get over it
3: the number of times that criming has been confirmed live on television is just a stunning
1: part of this particular era that we're in yeah and, and that's one of their defenses against why they aren't obstructing justice because they're doing it in broad daylight it's so funny
3: um but yeah nothing funny. peculiar
1: not funny haha
3: is he still Mulvaney hasn't been fired or anything yet. no he's still chief of staff he's still although chief of staff.
1: although there are a lot of uh, people like Talk about considers, considerations for other people to take his job. Oh, he's not on daddy's good side right now. No. Oh, okay. Not since he <laughs> admitted criming on national television <laughs> and then had to walk it back. Uh, Adam Schiff put out a statement about all these emails, too, saying that these documents were subpoenaed by the House and he can now see why Trump and the Department of Justice hid them because they're deeply incriminating character. He also said that without um, the production of all relevant documents, a fair trial in the Senate cannot take place. And that sort of bolsters the idea that we aren't going to send the articles to the Senate. Uh, Schiff said there are several takeaways from these new release documents. Three. Number one, the administration redacted highly incriminating information, including documentary proof the president personally directed the hold to continue after uh, Esper, Pompeo, and Bolton met with Trump in the Oval Office to try to convince him to release the aid. And that shows there can be no other reason for the hold other than to pressure Ukraine into helping Trump's re-election. Number two, the documents undermine any claim uh, that the hold was for an unknown but legitimate reason. (laughs) If there were a legitimate reason, they would have told Congress and wouldn't have redacted the information. And three... The emails are only one small part of the documents subpoenaed. And unless Trump provides these documents, we can only conclude anything withheld is similarly incriminating. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean,
3: genu- generally, when you withhold something, it's because it's incriminating. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's if like, you have a legit reason, yeah. it, 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 it's like Joyce Vance said mm-hmm. on Twitter. And, and this, tw- this tweet got a lot of traction. It's been quoted a million times. She's like, if if somebody's going to testify and their testimony will exonerate you, you let them testify. Mm-hmm. You don't block it mm-hmm. ever, never, <laughs> never do you do that? Uh, uh, there's only one reason to block this stuff. There's a reason that like twelve year old girls hide their journals. Mm.
3: <laughs> you know, do you want somebody to see that shit? That's correct. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so do forty five year old girls. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Also in the news this week in the Mueller-related universe, Peter Strzok is speaking out again, this time in a court filing from last Monday, saying his First Amendment rights and his right to privacy were abrogated when the FBI fired him and published private text messages sent between himself and lawyer Lisa Page. The filing this past week is part of the suit he filed in August that raises questions about the freedom of uh, rank-and-file employees of the FBI to share personal political opinions on government-issued devices. Uh, This is as opposed to higher ranking uh, FBI officials. This case is of particular interest to me, although I can't tell you why. Uh, As soon as I can, I'll fill you in. But there is a major difference between rank-and-file government employees and what they're allowed to do and say politically versus political appointees and higher-level appointees and executive branch employees. Lisa Page, for example, is a GS-14, uh, which is the same pay grade as me. Uh, And that means she is allowed to discuss politics and her opinion freely. Um, interestingly, Trump came out with new hatch act rules for social media and texting right after all this happened. Uh, I got that email, so I'm very interested to see how all this pans out for them. The actual argument from the Department of Justice is that even though Strzok is rank and file, his role in the investigation imposed on him a higher burden of caution with respect to his speech. Uh, But roughly 8,000 other SES-level managers are similarly similarly situated to Struck in the federal workforce, but the vast majority aren't policymakers. This tells me, first of all, Struck is SES, which does have higher standards than GS. Uh, SES stands for uh, Senior Executive Service. Uh, This is the cadre of employees that liaise between political appointees and the rank and file. Some middle managers. Right. Naturally, Trump is fine uh, with political speech from executive employees when, when it praises Trump. And Strzok even said this in his filing. And this is what's going to take Trump down in this case. Um, There has been... Uh, No evidence of an attempt to punish agents who celebrated Trump's election victory in private texts and volunteered to work on a probe of the Clinton Foundation, all of which came out in the inspector general's report that showed there was nothing wrong with the opening of the Trump-Russia investigation. And this is key. This is a key concept in government human resources and labor relations. You cannot punish one and not punish the other. Mm -hmm. You have to have the rules apply equally to everyone. So saying bad things about Trump in the new rules for example, those new rules that came out, Trump said specifically, you can't say anything bad about Trump, which is <laughs> weird. <laughs> um, and we know Kellyanne Conway has violated the Hatch Act over 60 times mm-hmm. because she's pro-Trump. You, the rules say you can't oppose or support a political candidate for office. Uh, but Trump is allowing people who support him to to break this rule, this Hatch Act, to violate the Hatch Act, but is punishing those who, who who say the opposite. Now, of course, Strzok is taking it a step further, saying, I'm rank and file. I am not held to this higher standard. You, you shouldn't be holding me to this higher standard. I have First Amendment uh, speech rights, although he is SES. And Lisa Page has even a stronger case because she's a GS-14.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And you are allowed to have political opinions there's just some rules that you you know you can't fundraise publicly mm-hmm. you can't use your title and agency to to support or oppose a candidate for office which is what kelly and conway's done a million mm-hmm. times
3: but and also these were private fucking conversations
1: yeah but they were on government issued devices true and so that's another thing too the rules about that are unclear yeah because if it's a private conversation then it's a private conversation
3: it, they weren't publishing it
1: right yeah And as we know, because of Lisa Page's interview with Molly Jong Fast, which is a really great interview, Mm -hmm. that um, it was the Department of Justice that that called in reporters and released these text messages and told the reporters not to source the Department of Justice as as where they got these text messages. And that violates so many privacy rules. And, uh, you know, especially from an administration who, you know, combats leaks so fiercely um, where we have McCabe on the other hand, who told the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. uh, about something about the Clinton investigation and and Trump used that as an excuse uh, to give a criminal referral to the Department of Justice, which the grand jury failed to return an indictment on. So it's like six and one. You can't have no. one without the other. And that is going to prove to be very difficult uh, for the Trump administration. Um, I, I know it too, mm-hmm. because if you don't prosecute Kellyanne Conway, And prosecutes a strong word because the only punishment for violating the Hatch Act is that you can be removed, and it's up to your boss. Uh, But if you're not going to remove similarly situated employees for for violating the same rules, you can't do it for someone else.
3: Yeah, you have to apply the rules equally. Yes. Yeah, and so
1: this case will be moving forward imminently. It is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like for example, when I was a manager in in the executive branch. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to write up an employee for being late and there were six other employees that were late that I did not write up, mm-hmm. I can't write up that employee. Right. I have to start. I have, you have to do it across the board or you can't, you know, or you you have a hard time doing it at all. And that that is a good thing because yeah. that means you can't have favorites. You can't every. The, the government and the military equal, is supposed to be like that. Equal application of the law. Mm-hmm. That's just a very good rule to follow. So whenever I had to write somebody up for being late, they would come to me and say, did you write anybody else up for being late? Like, yes. Here's all the people I've written up for being late. Here's all the times they were late. Here's all the documentation. And they go, OK, you applied the rule equally. Sorry, can't do anything about it. You have to take the write up. Mm-hmm. So that's how that works. Uh, another cool piece of news here. Trump had another call with Putin last week. And as usual. We heard about it from Russian state media. The Kremlin actually issued a statement saying Putin initiated the call to th- thank Trump for information provided by the U.S. that helped foil a terrorist attack in, attack in St. Petersburg. <laughs> <laughs> really? So either this is a lie or he actually helped foil a terrorist attack in St. Petersburg. And it makes me wonder if that was by the Iranian general uh, Soleimani and putin's like kill him like okay that's i have no proof of any of that but these are your beans but that's super beans. space beans that's some super space beans
3: right so it's like he wasn't an imminent attack to american lives he was an imminent threat to, to russia. russian
1: lives yeah. or to russia to the kremlin to the kremlin And he had this call and then the next day. Anyway, just saying, weird. Beans. Because a full 24 hours later, the White House officially confirmed the call uh, and added that the two also discussed arms control and the state of U.S.-Russia relations.
3: And their latest haircuts and the weather and their besties. (laughs)
1: Uh, This is, I think, eight calls and meetings now we have to learn about from Russia. So I assume there's a standing order that Trump is not allowed to release readouts of their calls before Putin does. So we'll probably never know the exact substance of the call, but I bet I know how they ended, right? Like, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. You didn't hang up. Oh, I know. You, you guy. I think that's probably how it, how it happened. Uh, and now, of course, just days after that call, uh, the United States has assassinated the top general in Iran. And now Iran, China, and Russia are running military drills together. That's wonderful. It's only a matter of time before North Korea gets involved. Uh, and since we've shit all over our NATO allies, we aren't going to be able to coalition build, uh, and no one believes the state department on, or Trump, that there was an imminent terrorist attack about to be carried out by, uh, Soleimani, unless the imminent terrorist attack was the one on St. Petersburg. And of course, Trump supporters are saying that if you disagree with this move, you're siding with terrorism, uh, ignore that bullshit because the lack of evidence is astounding. Um. The gang, of, the gang of Eight wasn't briefed on this attack, and, and now we're sending thousands of troops to the region. There was and is no plan. Nancy Pelosi is calling for an immediate discussion with Congress about how to proceed because it's illegal to go to war without, at a minimum, consulting Congress. And this attack comes as Pelosi is, you know, holding up a sham impeachment acquittal in the Senate. So interesting timing. So um, the Soleimani killing may, may well have been uh, justified. But public skepticism about the reasons uh, shows how a president with zero credibility can undermine national security. And was it even justified? Um, There was a reason Obama and and Bush did not kill this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They knew exactly where he was. Uh, They were both advised by the best strategic and political minds that um, Soleimani's death and martyrdom would be more dangerous than him being alive. Pompeo also canceled his trip to Ukraine. How convenient. Hmm. Uh, I had tweeted back in May, quote, this is back in May. Mm-hmm. Trump wants to start a war in Iran for nothing other than enriching his friends and winning in 2020. He will be willing to kill Americans, women and children to line his pockets. That's it. Money. Think of someone, you know, in the military. So, yeah, th- that was back in May. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Yeah. Fuck.
3: <clears throat> I have a question for you. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember super clearly, but when Osama bin Laden was killed, 2011, was it? I think it was around there. Um, was more warning given to Congress? Was was you know w- were the proper channels followed when that happened?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. The right. Gang of Eight was briefed. There was yeah. a, everybody was in there. Secretary of State. Right. We, I've seen you know you've seen all the pictures and stuff. Right. Right. Um,
3: I mean, so so if this was justified as he's saying it was, it would have taken very little time to run this past Congress to get approval right you know and, and and the only reason he didn't is because it's completely fucking unjustified y- yes <laughs> he has no reason right 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 um the only reason i asked this question about um obama and the killing of Osama bin laden is i'm just talking about the talking points that republicans will have in terms
1: of comparing it to other moments in time yeah you know? for real yeah uh that was yeah 2011 yeah 2011 mm-hmm. and you know, there's a great piece in the Washington Post about why his killing is different from other uh, targeted attacks by the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you should check that out. In the Washington Post came out yesterday, okay. um, and experts are reacting uh, to to this mm-hmm. badly. Um, so, it, you know, it's just we'll have to see it unfold. And I don't, I don't have, I don't know. This is going to give something great for the Democrats to run on, but I mean. This is very dangerous. Um, it's
3: it's really dangerous. And um, yeah, uh, I, I think I mentioned this on the Beans episode that we just recorded, but um, I know it's really easy to deal with your uh, fear about the situation by making like jokes about the draft or whatever. And like, I get it because that's the whole reason we have the show, like dealing with stressful stuff through humor. Um, but like, you know, do keep in mind all of the loss of civilian life that will happen (laughs) so i i it makes it makes voting even more important and um i don't know
1: luckily unluckily it gives democrats even more fuel to their fire for this election yes and i promise you that if you disagree with the way that this was handled it doesn't make you uh, uh, side it doesn't put you on the side of of iranian terrorists no no matter how no matter what trump or trump supporters try to tell you
3: yeah here's the thing support the troops not the war yeah (laughs) you know, it's really easy. It's, it, it, I, I, you can support the troops, but not support war. And I think that the the right does not understand that. I am a troop. Exactly. (laughs) You
1: you, you know, like there's a lot of people on the right who fundamentally don't
3: understand that nuance, Mm -hmm. you know? And granted,
1: I'm in a little bit of a bubble. I know who I speak to that are mm -hmm. veterans and they're in the military. Everyone's like, what the fuck? Right. So, and, and like I said, even under uh, GW, Mm -hmm. um, they were like, we're not killing this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's, he's, he's more dangerous dead as a martyr than, than he is alive and plotting. But now I'm really interested to know what this imminent St. Petersburg attack was that, that Trump helped foil. Yeah. I, Hmm. If you need a, a a tiny brief moment
3: of levity, there's a really short clip with AOC giving her statement on this mm-hmm. about the about about Iran, and I enjoyed that, where she was just completely and totally blunt about it. Where she was like, she's like, "Are you pissed about it?" And she's like, "Yeah, I it it makes me very nervous, um, but I think that I, I I'm 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 I hope Democrats come out against this as strongly
1: as they need to this year, and I hope it." becomes a major 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 issue i'm sure it's going to be heavily talked about in the january 14th upcoming democratic debate i'm sure it'll so be the next one yeah, yeah i'm sure it'll be talked about i wonder who's going to be on this debate uh i haven't looked yet yeah. but uh, i know cnn is hosting it so mm-hmm. um but i i'm sure it will come up
3: yeah we not, not a fan of cnn hosting the debates uh, no yeah
1: i like pbs that i like wasn't when your does it yes msnbc yeah. did a pretty okay job
3: I think, uh, what's the guy's name? The Univision guy who, did, uh, who was like a really, really good at the debates in 2016. Uh, he asked really good questions. I can't remember
1: his name, but he's awesome. And I hope he does another one. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Uh, but not this time, not January 14th, unfortunately. So, yeah. But maybe in the future.
3: Speaking of Univision, it's great to see some candidates doing town halls in Spanish. Oh, yeah. We love that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many Spanish speakers in this country. It's kind of blows my mind sometimes. Actually, as someone who grew up in a country that's like legally bilingual and like formally bilingual, um, only a third... formally, yeah, pa- pardon, formally, formally, not yes. formally, yes, yes, correct, mm-hmm. formally, not formerly, uh, formally, as in like it's it's uh, it's a legal requirement for government services to be r- provided in English and French. Um, it's wild to me because only a third of Canada's population are um uh, francophone, and yet we have this like legally mandated bilingualism, and here, like way more than a third, not maybe way more than a third, but like millions and millions and millions of Americans have Spanish as their first language. And yet it's not you can't get, not a third, that's what I'm saying. It's not a third, but there are, there's a huge number. Mm-hmm. It, it, you would think that in states where there's a lot of Spanish speakers, more government services would be provided. But I think that should be a thing.
1: It is, and a lot of agencies require yeah. multiple languages. Oh, good. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, not not uh, yeah. not the talking points of the Republican no, Party. No, of certain. course not. Of <laughs> course not. I, I mean, we live in San Diego. Obviously, I feel that way. Thing. Yes. <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it's it's a different world over here in California, for yes, sure. For sure. But um, no, it is it is nice to see. And and uh, unfortunately, um, the the field keeps narrowing and mm-hmm. it be, it's becoming less diverse. Uh, sadly, mm-hmm. you know, um, Castro just dropped out yeah. uh, over the holidays. So, you know, now we, but we still have Gabbard and uh, Williamson in um, again, I'm going to vote for whoever wins, but they mm-hmm. aren't going to win. And no. uh, it's. It's just a little disheartening to me personally uh, as I as I, I I'm sure it is to to many but absolutely uh, we have to remember the the <laughs> keep your eye on the prize because if we don't vote, we have to vote I, I, and I've sort of been living under this assumption that Trump is going to lose the election in November. We have to stop doing that. Um, is that our new energy for 2020 yeah no more naivete <laughs> yes. Uh, because we had that going into 2016, and it didn't bode well.
3: And it was a level of arrogance, too, I think, on the, on the part
1: of some Democrats. Where we were like, oh, absolutely not. Right. You know, and I think that is gone now. Good. So and yeah, I, I, I don't so. want to perpetuate that. I mean, mm-hmm. I have full faith and confidence because I'm trying to spread hope, mm-hmm. but I need to make sure that uh, it doesn't get, it's, it's not lost on me that uh, things can take turns for the worse. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, we'll be here, and we'll continue to be here, and we'll be here right after this break, so stick around. <laughs> we mm-hmm. Hey everybody, today's episode of Muller She Wrote is brought to you by Zola. Zola is the easiest way to plan your wedding and your registry with free wedding websites, the easiest wedding registry at, like in the world, affordable invite suites, and more. Zola conveniently manages everything online and in one place, saving so much time for couples. I wish I had known about Zola when I got married uh, because we had to use like so many different vendors. It was chaotic. It was a nightmare. Uh, but you can join a million couples who've used Zola and take the stress out of wedding planning. Starting with a free wedding website. It's free. Uh, It's easy. just takes a couple minutes to set up, and you can customize it. They have hundreds of beautiful wedding website designs to choose from, all uh, with matching invitation suites. And, And you can add photos and stories about how the two of you met. Um, You can put accommodations info in there, uh, an FAQ, and even local recommendations for out-of-towners when they come to your wedding. And then build your dream registry at Zola. You can add a mix of gifts, experiences, and honeymoon funds, add gifts from other stores, sync existing registries. You have total flexibility on this, and it's really, truly amazing. The day after your wedding, Zola automatically applies 20% off at checkout for the remaining gifts on your registry, (laughs) which lasts six months. 20% off lasts six months. So you'll get free shipping and returns, free and easy exchanges you're probably going and want to exchange some of the stuff that you get and then you get the 20% off checkout there's price matching group gifting there's, it's, it's got everything that you need and you get the right paper options from Zola too including your save the dates invites and thank you cards in a wide variety of beautiful and affordable cards customizable for every wedding style to match your site um, you can collect addresses and track online RSVPs with the free guest list manager which is a lifesaver and Zola will address your envelopes for free so go to Zola.com AG today and sign up for your free personalized paper sample then use code SAVE50 SAVE50 to get 50% off your save the dates that's zola.com ag and use promo code save 50 you'll be glad you did all right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, so we got a new tranche of documents in the McCabe case. Almost 200 pages released New Year's Eve. So that was my New Year's Happy Eve party. New Year. <laughs> and uh, these are from interviews with the Inspector General and his investigation into McCabe's handling of the Clinton and Russia probes. We already knew that McCabe was criminally referred to the Department of Justing for la- just- Justing, <laughs> the Department of Justin, uh, Department of Justice for lacking candor. Uh, When he told the interviewers at the inspector general that he did not know how a Wall Street Journal story came to be, but then retracted that later and corrected his answer. We knew this. This is we've known this. Uh, He was asking uh, he was asked the question uh, the day Comey was fired. He was dealing with quite a bit, as you can imagine. Not to mention the inspector general was interviewing him regarding a different media link and just sort of also asked him about this one. So then in August, a couple months after sifting through the piles of interviews and documents, the inspector general noted that at one point, another somebody else said McCabe talked to the journal, but McCabe said he didn't. So they came back and asked McCabe about the conflict of information. And McCabe, they said, did you authorize this story? And McCabe said, yep, yep, I did. And, uh, you know, modified his his testimony. So these new documents show that the agent was frustrated with McCabe at that point, saying, man, we put a lot of work into, into this when you said that you didn't. We put a lot of work based on your answers. And then McCabe said, I'm sorry. I know I'm sorry. Uh, and so the Republicans are running with this saying, you know, McCabe flip flopped and then lied and then apologized. Um, <laughs> this is not news. McCabe did not flip flop. Um, so like I said, these are the headlines you'll probably see from Trump camp, the Trump camp Um Embedded in publications like the Daily Beast. But none of this is news. It's all laid out in Andy's lawsuit. We've already spoken to him about it. We've told you about it. The grand jury did not indict him for this error. Uh, he was wrongfully terminated. He will win his pension back. So don't worry about it. I know you're seeing a lot of stories right now that that say, oh, new documents show Trump or excuse me, McCabe flipped flopped and lied and apologized. He admitted he admitted this a long ass time ago. Mm-hmm. And. This has been the exact same uh, testimony since the beginning. It's, same story. It's the same. So don't don't worry about it. He's he's already come forth with. Don't this buy information. into that BS. Please do not. <laughs> and uh, speaking of document dumps, we got our latest dump of Mueller memos in the BuzzFeed FOIA case. This New is a, Mueller memos. This is the one where Jason Leopold reported for, reported for BuzzFeed said there are so many underlying Mueller documents, eighteen billion that uh, he'll be getting a dump uh, of hundreds of pages every month for at least 169 years. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not, that's, I didn't make that number up. Uh, (laughs) That's the thing. Uh, This one has, this dump has over 350 pages. It includes interviews with Stephen Miller, Rob Porter, more from Cohen and Manafort. Uh, And there's also a 31 page interview that's totally redacted, including the name of the person that was interviewed. Hmm. So some of the key takeaways from this dump, other than there was an entire redacted interview, makes me really wonder who that is uh first in the steven miller 302 302 is the form that you mm-hmm. fill out when you're interviewing the fbi interviews you we learned that he had a key role in drafting a letter for firing comey one that eventually wasn't used because rod rosenstein's letter was used instead but during a trip to bedminster may 5th in a meeting where miller and kushner were in attendance trump said he wanted to fire comey and he needed a letter and he, ha- he already had a great concept <laughs> uh for the for the announcement but the great concept uh, details are redacted we don't know what his great concept was for firing comey i have an excuse that might work for firing comey yeah and that <laughs> one was not used it probably had everything to do with russia uh-huh. it was probably like because of the russia investigation uh-huh. and everyone's like no can't say that bro can't
3: <laughs> and th- say that
1: and that's when they used rod rosenstein's letter that pissed off rod rosenstein rod rosenstein eventually appointed Muller mm-hmm. as the special counsel to look into the firing of Comey at the at the request of McCabe or McCabe urged him to do that. What's Rosen sign up to now? I don't care. <laughs> just tweeting like a magnanimous an asshole. <laughs> Uh, Another interesting find in this tranche is that Katie McFarlane spoke to the FBI under an agreement usually given to people under criminal investigation. She provided information under a proffer agreement. A proffer agreement is like called a queen for a day interview. It means, hey, we know you're a crime. You're criming. Uh, But anything you tell us won't be used against you. You just tell us the truth. She spoke to the FBI under a proffer agreement. K.T. McFarlane, Bud McFarlane's protege, she was really into this whole uh, you know, Middle East Marshall plan, building Saudi nuclear uh, reactors in Saudi Arabia to, quote, recolonize the Middle East, um, very tied into Russia and uh, that whole group of folks. Uh, and she was first interviewed in the summer, but revised her statement after it was contradicted by Flynn's guilty plea. And this 302 shows us the interview where she told the FBI she was going to be given the ambassadorship to Singapore uh, in exchange for Trump and in, in exchange for writing a, a letter, an email for Trump saying the president never directed Flynn to call the Russians about sanctions. Uh, she did not do that. Uh, her lawyer told her not to because it looked like a quid pro quo. And she in, uh, instead took down the request in a contemporaneous note and and gave that to the FBI. And here's a good one. Jerome Corsi told the FBI he'd been lying to himself himself. So he would learn to believe his own story.
3: <laughs> hey.
1: yeah. uh, Corsi is a stone associate best known for uh, advancing birtherism and working for InfoWars. Uh, quote, the special counsel's office interview, it was the first time he came to terms with the truth. His 302 says, quote, he'd been lying to himself to believe his own cover story. Corsi apologized that It had taken him so long to come to terms with the truth. He needed to admit to himself that he was lying. Uh, of course, the Department of Justice has redacted what he was lying about, um, but that's a funny, uh, I was lying to myself. We also got the actual part of the interview. Wow.
3: <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So he
1: he told the FBI, I've been having to lie to myself over and over again so I could believe my own cover story so I don't get, you know, I don't get tripped over, tripped up over the truth.
3: I'm sorry about that, dude. What he was lying about. That is sucks for you, still dude. still redacted.
1: <laughs> And we also got in this dump, we got the actual part of the interview where Cohen Googled a phone number to the Kremlin to try to get a meeting (laughs) with Putin and Trump. (laughs) We knew about this uh, because this is when the whole Trump Tower Moscow thing was going down uh, that Cohen uh, was trying to get a hold of, uh, you know, somebody at the Kremlin and he actually Googled like the Kremlin to find out and called that number. Um, 1-800-KREMLIN. (laughs) Yes. 1 800 <laughs> collusion. Um, so we knew that happened, but to see it in writing, to see Cohen say it to the FBI is just amazing and hilarious. Uh, there's a lot more from Cohen in this uh, in this dump, including him trying to weasel his way out of his slush fund, Essential Consulting, as a lobbying firm. He said, yeah, yeah, I got talking points for Columbus Nova and an aerospace company in South Korea and a company called FruitaPop that sold alcohol-infused ice pops and a pharmaceutical company, uh, but I'm not a lobbyist. Uh, <laughs> but these folks knew I had close, ki- close ties to Trump, so I was given these talking points from AT&T and Novartis. And uh, you know Blavatnik, Columbus, Nova, to to give to Trump, uh, and I sold them for money. So I'm not a lobbyist. It's funny. Uh, Then we got some new Manafort stuff, uh, uh, and Manafort told the FBI he believed Trump was using Hannity as a back channel to communicate to him. And this is not a surprise to us either because we read the Manafort-Hannity text, we called him the Manity texts <laughs> where Hannity was telling Manafort to hang in there and Trump's got your back and blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. But we now have it in writing in, that Manafort told the FBI that it seemed like Trump was speaking to him through Hannity, mm-hmm. not directly. Uh, we also found out Mashburn, this is one of the guys involved in changing the language on Ukraine policy in the, in the RNC platform during the elections, uh mashburn told the fbi that hope hicks called papadopoulos a problem child so that's cute and finally this week the fbi has raided the home of k street lobbyists this is now we're past the past the documents okay this is a different story okay (laughs) Uh, i just want to say that those are the key points that i took away from these documents there's more there's so much more just little nuggets just little new nuggets every month just yeah just more confirmation it's everything we knew Uh, sometimes there's new stuff Um, Like like Manafort thought Trump was talking to him through Hannity, which we assumed. But to hear Manafort say it is just uh, exceptionally fun. God. So uh, but aside from that, now the FBI has raided the home of K Street lobbyist with with close ties to Trump uh, and Trump's family named Michael Esposito. They also raided his office looking for evidence of fraud, according to several people familiar with the matter that spoke to the Washington Post. Apparently, Esposito greatly exaggerated his closeness to the president and his business boomed in the Trump era, selling access to the president. Uh, Seemingly another guy selling fake access to Trump, like Brody did, like uh, uh, the uh, Chinese national at Mar-a-Lago did, Mm -hmm. uh, selling photos. uh, And then, of course... um, essential consulting is fucking essential that. trump sells fake access to trump yeah so now so now this guy's under investigation for possibly defrauding his clients after the 2016 election when he joined um the, the the cadre of loyalists who follow every new administration trying to climb the washington influence ladder and sell access but his connections to trump don't hold up to scrutiny uh and he has previously represented himself as a democrat <laughs> Um, so this is one of those guys who will latch on to whoever seems to be winning. A chameleon. Yeah. It reminds me of Nader, actually, Uh who recently was indicted for selling access to Hillary Clinton and then switched to sell access to Trump after Trump won. So it seems like K Street is just one giant ambiguous blob of assholes trying to sell fake access to whatever candidate appears to be on top, regardless of party. This is what they do. Neat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, did, did you know that was happening? I knew it was happening, but now we're just starting to get all the and and this is these are both siders like you said. These are chameleons. This is Esposito guy is like Nader, is like Greg Craig is like any of these lobbyists who will Cuz no Gre- scruples. Cuz Greg that, Craig, is that the good word for that? Yes. Cuz yeah. Greg Craig and no loyalty. <laughs> right. Cuz Greg Craig was a, a you know, a democrat but then helped do this uh fucking lobbyist work for, mm-hmm. you know, the whole yep. It's just it's Insane. I mean, Trump used to be a Democrat too. So whitewashing the Temoshenko <laughs> report, basically. Yeah, this Manafort uh, put together this report that mm-hmm. says Temoshenko, which is Yanukovych's uh, opponent, mm-hmm. uh, she belonged in prison, and she got ska- they got Skadden and Arps uh, to write this report. You know, with the help of Zwan, whose stepdad owns Alpha Bank. Just all these weird connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, Greg Craig, who's a former Democratic lobbyist, still a Democrat, I guess, uh, but has worked for you know Clinton and others, now is helping get this news story published, get this whitewash report of Temoshenko, pro-Kremlin you know, um, thing out uh, through the New York Times. He was eventually found not guilty of mm-hmm. this lobbying, but uh, his, his hands were all over it anyway. I want the Trump
3: crime network to be like a print for the wall, and I want you to design it.
1: Oh, jeez. <laughs> the, the studio's not big enough. No,
3: I know. But I'm just saying, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh,
1: all the connections?
3: Yeah. Oh. You could draw... I mean, there's probably... Every single new name that we're hearing is, like, not even six degrees of separation. No. Three
1: degrees of separation. Yeah. And Ice Cube's involved. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Sarah so, Michelle from the Fugees.
3: Also, can you think of anything more embarrassing than than your, than being charged with defrauding your clients for selling fake access to Trump? <laughs>
1: It's pretty. It's pretty sad. Yeah, it is. It's fucking essential. So
3: what? What exactly? What, what, fucking essential <laughs> consulting. Yes.
1: Uh, Sam Patton was involved in this selling. You know, being straw donors to sell the inaugural tickets. This is all going to come out in the inaugural investigation. Bullshit artists always call it. It's the same thing in like the tech startup
3: world, right? The same thing in politics, same thing in like a lot of these sorts of things where you can just like, you can come in out of nowhere and have a consulting firm or like have a business. Yeah, we used they always to have say bullshit that, names like
1: that. We used to say that they probably the best way to name your consulting bullshit consulting firm is to go to Home Depot and just get a bunch of paint chips. <laughs> I mean, like. Sunrise Horizons and Soft Surf Sand or whatever, you know, and they have all these shell company names to, you know, where you're laundering money and hiding it in the Caymans and the Seychelles and uh, Cyprus, <laughs> just uh, Home Depot paint chips. You need like, either, go to like a random name generator website.
3: But yeah, paint chip, that's a good one. Home it, Depot yeah. paint chips. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's how you name your consulting firm <laughs> yeah. Maroon Sunset. Yeah. <laughs> but like essential consulting. Essential My favorite consulting. still
1: is Giuliani's Fraud Guarantee with uh, with Levin and Igor. Yeah. That's still the best named of all The Fraud Guarantee. Oh, man. Mm. I, the movies are going to be good there's going to be so many there's going to be some yeah if, if anyone's writing any let me know I'll, I'll consult i know all these connections you listen you are absolutely going to be consulting on movies about trump in the future i hope you know that i hope so yes because <laughs> i could use i could use a paycheck for, for for once um and maybe some time off but i just <laughs> did take two weeks off i shouldn't complain too much but it was it was a long time coming yeah it was thank good. you it was all all you guys for like letting me take we did put yes. out a she wrote last week i can't take i can't take full credit I did.
3: You you worked a little, but you did actually take time off to deal with life shit, to rest.
1: Yeah. I think it was really important. Well, thank you. Yeah.
3: I feel better. Uh, and, I, and you know what? Jordan and I did too. Yes. And it was really good. I think everyone
1: rested or rejuvenated or ready or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And now we're back. <laughs> and there's nothing going on. So
3: <laughs> nothing. It's going totally on. legal
1: and totally cool. Uh, and we will be right back. Very special hot note about the January 3rd Separation of Power Super Bowl. Uh, as called uh, by myself and Uncle Blazer. He's going to be with me right after the break. Please note, uh, in this interview, when I talk about Gamble v. U.S., uh, try to connect it to McKeenan. I meant McKeever v. U.S. You'll see what I mean. Uh, it's a case that has to do with uh, what's going on with uh, inherent powers to get around a Rule 6-C to turn over grand jury materials. It's McKeever, not McKeenan, and certainly not Gamble. That was a double jeopardy case. So, just to, you know, so you don't have to worry about that correction. I just wanted to make it for you. And um, it's a really great interview. So stick around. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Getting in shape does not have to be about losing weight, uh, or a magic number on the scale. It's about building healthier habits and feeling better about yourself. Um, Maybe fitting into that favorite pair of jeans is your goal. Awesome. Uh, But there are many other reasons you might want to practice self care. uh, And every person is different. And that's why this year, Um, you can try something different with Noom. Uh, Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses, and these are based in psychology, and it teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Noom teaches you uh, about the psychology behind the decisions you make and then helps you keep track of everything from workouts and steps and uh, great. It's got an amazing food log. That was my big problem when I was trying to do this before Noom is I had like six, different apps but they're all in one place now it helps you analyze your diet recommends healthy choices and recipes and they also connect you with personally assigned goal specialists and a a whole community of other noomers so you have all the support you need uh, to empower your change Um, last year i joined noom Uh, initially i lost 17 pounds i've been able to keep it off so my goal isn't weight loss this year it's more self-care spending more time on me and having more energy and what i love about noom is it's already helping me understand my thought patterns in that direction what leads me to certain choices and it's giving me a feeling of greater control uh, and alleviates anxiety uh, believe it or not and it makes it convenient with the app Um, they ask you to commit just 10 minutes a day to something new a program that works with your lifestyle and allows you to eat what you want in moderation because you learn to control your habits so you don't have to change it all in one day Small steps. Baby steps. What about Bob? So sign up for your trial today at Noom, dot com slash A-G. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom slash A-G to start your trial today. Once again, that's Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash A-G. You'll be glad you did. All right. Welcome back. Awesome. Hot notes. So joining me today for hot notes is legal expert from Twitter, Uncle Blazer, real life lawyer, to discuss the D.C. Circuit Court Mueller arguments uh, welcome back to Mueller. She wrote. How are you?
2: Hey, AG. great. How you doing?
1: Good. Happy New Year.
2: Thanks. Same to you.
1: Uh, so this past Friday, we heard a live stream of oral arguments in both Mueller cases, what we called the separation of powers Super Bowl. Uh, and those are the Don McGahn subpoena case for the obstruction of justice impeachment investigation and the Mueller grand jury materials case. So what can you tell us about what happened?
2: Well, I, I, I think it's best to discuss the two cases together because they, they overlap in a lot of ways, including the composition of the panels that considered the two cases. Um, on both panels, there, there's two separate panels of three judges, but both of the panels have two judges in common and then a third judge that's different between the two panels, but probably is ideologically more aligned with Trump. or or at least the GOP's view of executive power. And so the swing judge in both the cases, I think, is Judge Griffith, who is a a GOP-appointed judge, a Federalist Society guy, but also a guy who uh, voted against granting en banc review to Trump in the Mazar's case, and so has shown at least that he's not willing to go as far as Trump's legal team is willing to go in describing the powers of the executive branch. So I really, in listening to the two cases, I listened to Griffith and I didn't really care all that much about what any of the other judges were saying. Everything they said just confirmed my view that they were going to vote the way they were going to vote, no matter what happened in that argument.
1: Uh, I see what you're saying. So you were, you were thinking that regardless of the arguments, uh, based on the, uh, composition of the panels, that they sort of already are you thinking they already had their minds made up? I'm I'm thinking
2: that everybody on the panel except for Griffith, well, look, probably everybody had their mind made up before the argument. They'd read the briefs. They're, they're, you're very unlikely to be actually persuaded during the argument. It's it's conceivable to persuade a judge during the argument, but only if he's really he or she is really on the fence. And in this case, if the judges had made up their mind going into oral argument how they were inclined to rule, then all they're going to be doing is asking questions to try to confirm in their own minds that they're already correct. And so when when they're pushing back against things, they're generally pushing back against the things that they've already decided against. And so they just want to test, they want to kind of pressure test their own analysis to make sure that it withstands the argument by the other side. Um so but but yeah I think all the judges likely came in at least leaning one way or the other and and so Griffith it wasn't so much about seeing whether Griffith was going to make up his mind on the spot but whether Griffith was going was going to say things that let us know how he's already inclined to rule. Um so that's what I was really listening for from from Griffith. I, I think you know Rao is is almost certainly going to find for Trump although she did pose some difficult questions for Trump for for the DOJ. Um, but I, I still think she's inclined to find in favor of Trump's view of executive power. Um, and so Griffith ends up the, the swing judge on both panels and I, I mean, his, he, he was all right. So on the substance of the arguments, he was very opposed to everything Trump's counsel was saying, And seemed very supportive of the House's position on the substance of the case. The issue that Griffith seems to be hung up on in both cases is, can the uh, judicial branch of government step in and resolve disputes like these between the executive and legislative branches? Or should the executive and legislative branches be left to their own devices to resolve these disputes using their normal tools like Congress uses the power of the purse? And, you know, so... And, and the argument that's being made by the Department of Justice is, listen, uh, over all these decades, all of these kinds of controversies were resolved by negotiations between the parties. The courts didn't intervene. And so you shouldn't intervene in these kinds of cases. There's no precedent for you to step in. It always just gets resolved by the parties. Um, and, and the you know, I think the, Griffith pushed back against that in, in some respects by saying um, – well, all right. So I, I, my my view of Griffith is that this is his issue in the case. If, if he can get, however, he resolves this issue, that's how the case is going to be resolved at the at the circuit court level. So far as I'm concerned, and I'm I'm trying to you know glean from what he says how he's leaning on that issue. And I think there were he said things that cut both ways. So I'm I'm not sure whether he's made up his mind
1: on that point.
2: And maybe he was looking to be persuaded, but. It's unclear which way he's going to rule on that issue.
1: Now, let's say that Griffith does dismiss these cases for jurisdictional reasons or uh, because he was on he's a he's a panel member on both cases, correct? Correct. So if he dismisses on jurisdictional grounds to leave it up to the parties to to, you know, solve for themselves, what does that mean for Does that mean that the. Trump can just go on and defy the subpoenas, and the Department of Justice can go on and not hand over the Mueller grand jury materials, or or would they have to?
2: Well, that that's where you know Douglas Letter, the House General Counsel, really went with the with that you know hypothetical or that that idea that you would just let the the executive and legislative branches negotiate between themselves. He said, so so what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, we're supposed to send over the Sergeant at Arms, and he meets you know, bars, battalion of FBI agents, and they open fire on each other. <laughs> I mean, he, he literally said that to the court. He said, you know, wh- is this supposed to be a gun battle? What, what do we do when they flatly refuse to comply with the subpoenas? You know, it's, there's, no, there's no negotiation to be had here. It's not like we'll give you some of this, but not some of that. that that's what a negotiation is. This is a binary choice. Is he going to let these people testify or or is he not?
1: Yeah. And what other arguments stuck out to you? Because that one really stuck out to me, the hypothetical gun battle between the sergeant-at-arms and the FBI. What other uh, arguments did you hear that that stood out to you? Well,
2: in the Mueller grand jury material case, which I think is a closer case and more interesting case of the two cases, by the way, um, there was an, an issue that the the Department of Justice raised that even Naomi Rao pushed back against. Um, and it, I think it's going to take a lot to find something that she's going to push back against from the Department of Justice. But um, the, the Department of Justice is saying, look, you know, 6E grand jury materials can only be obtained in a judicial proceeding. And so uh, you have to argue that the, uh, the impeachment proceeding in the House is a judicial proceeding or you can't get the materials under, under 6E.
1: But don't we have uh, uh, precedent for that in the Nixon case? The Jaworski report? Um, I
2: I I don't think so, because they're saying you you it, it has to be a judi- it has to be a trial, um, in order for you to, uh, uh, get grand jury materials under 6e. ei I don't think that the that grand jury materials were an issue in the Nixon case. If they were, it predated this statute. Maybe I'm not sure why the 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 statue the same statute wouldn't have been invoked both times
1: right because they did get the jaworski report uh in in the nixon case we didn't find out about it until very recently but that that jaworski report had outlined several felonies committed by nixon and, and that is actually what f- flipped all the republicans and forced nixon to resign before he was actually impeached but i don't know the mechanism by which you know, I'm going to have to look up, uh, look that up, the mechanism by which the Jaworski report was released, other than it's, you know, it's just it's the grand jury materials rules don't apply because this is, you know, a need to know it is a judicial proceeding. Um, and and there have been other cases where impeachment has been ruled a judicial proceeding.
2: Yeah, I, and I I think DOJ's answer to that is to say um, that the the issue of whether or not it was a judicial proceeding was not uh, decided by any court, the, those documents were provided um, by the executive branch to the, impeach, in, the impeachment committee, uh, you know, in the House, but um, it, it, it wasn't pursuant to a court order. Uh-huh. It was just because they decided to do it, you know, and so and so de- the Department of Justice is, is although at, at the same time, they're saying, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to turn, we we can't turn these materials over.
1: Right. And now prosecutors are saying, well, since the Department of Justice is being non-cooperative, we have to go to the executive or we have to go to the judicial branch to have this settled.
2: Right. And I, I mean, I think the obvious answer to this question is that you don't need to to meet the exceptions that are expressly stated in 6E in order to get grand jury materials. Congress has the right to these materials under its impeachment power. And so Congress is saying, look, under the Constitution, I have the sole power of impeachment, I must be able to get all of the evidence that I need for that. and so I am summoning this evidence under uh, my my constitutional powers, and no statute can override my constitutional power so if the if the statute says, you can only get it if it's a judicial proceeding. Well, we don't even have to answer that question because I'm not invoking that provision of of the the grand jury material statute. I'm invoking my constitutional power to get whatever the hell I want in order to to decide an impeachment question.
1: Right. There was a recent case where, you know, they said um that the that, that judges don't have inherent powers to 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 do that, but that's not what's being argued by the prosecution here. They are saying Or Congress, excuse me, Doug Letter, saying we have this power under under constitutional Article one, Article two impeachment powers.
2: Yeah. and, And simultaneously, they're saying, by the way, this is a judicial proceeding. And so if you if you must decide under the statute whether this is a judicial proceeding, it is one. Um, But you don't have to reach that question because we're using our constitutional power to get these documents anyway. So they're sort of fighting it on both grounds. But then once you decide, okay, this is a judicial proceeding, then the DOJ says, well, if that's the case, then the court needs to go through every single redaction to the Mueller report and say whether or not uh, Congress has a specific need for each and every single uh, redacted word in the document. Um, and even that's the part where Naomi Rao pushed back and said, you mean to tell me that a judge is supposed to decide what Congress is going to want to look at in an impeachment inquiry? It, you, don't, you, don't, you don't think that's us substituting our judgment for them when they have the sole power of impeachment? Um, and, and the DOJ's answer to that was, well, it's not a judicial proceeding. So I don't think you, you should go through that analysis, because step one is, is it a judicial proceeding? OK, if it is a judicial proceeding, then you must review each and every redaction. And so the DOJ says, because we because you can't meet the second step, therefore, you must not be meeting the first step either. Um, so it's it's a it's a, a wackadoodle argument that's very difficult to even articulate or understand. Um, I don't even know if it's really even worth discussing if it's just going to confuse people
1: right and then you know not 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 only that but then there's of course the doj argument that this isn't an impeachment anymore because the impeachment is over
2: yeah and that one went just nowhere (laughs) yeah that just that just fell completely flat um none of the judges latched onto that at all no one was interested in that argument so far as i could tell um I, i and i seriously doubt that they're going to remand the case i know i said that to you that i thought they might or or that that was a fear. I really don't think they're going to remand the case and ask judge Howell to go through each and every redaction to the Mueller report and decide whether or not it's something the house should want to see.
1: Yeah, and that didn't make sense and the fact that Rao even pushed back on that because Rao Rao has found in favor of Trump in another case, did she not?
2: Yeah. Yeah, she she well, she dissented from the Mazars opinion um and and, and said that that you know Trump should have won that case. Um, and that that's a that's a much easier case to decide than this one. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel like she's going to rule in favor of Trump, but she's probably not going to rule in favor of Trump on that issue.
1: Yeah. So when do we hear? When do we hear the rulings?
2: Um, I think we're probably, you know, three to six weeks. And but and the, the wild card in that is, like, if Rao wants to dissent from the opinion, you know, she can hijack it for a couple weeks while she's writing her dissent. Um, although, you know, the, the judge in, that's assigned to write the the main opinion can, you know, limit the time that you can spend writing your dissent. But But, you know, she may be able to drag it out a few extra weeks if she really wants to buy Trump time.
1: Time for what?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, exactly. the clock. You can never run the clock out completely. Right. But I mean, <laughs> right. you know, the case has to go to the Supreme Court next. Yep. And so the longer it drags out, the the longer it takes to get to the Supreme Court, and the longer it takes to get to the Supreme Court, the longer it takes to get decided by the Supreme Court. But I mean, does Rao really give a shit about that? Yeah. I mean, wh- why why is she trying to help him by time?
1: Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, she might have a dissenting opinion, one way or the other you know one way or the other but I, I i you're right i don't think it's uh i don't think she would go so far as to just rule in order to buy him time that doesn't i don't think that that's something that that would happen
2: no although i do think mcfadden is doing that in the in the um treasury case i mean he's just basically sat on the case for for months and months and months, but that's a little bit different than trying to buy a couple weeks. I mean, what's the point of that?
1: And the treasury case being the house ways and means committee, uh, trying yeah. to get the tax, trying to get the tax returns from the IRS.
2: And yeah, I mean, that case is, is going nowhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's just been totally sort of stopped.
2: It could be hung up. It could be hung up for another six or eight months. I mean, it's just going nowhere. It's going no yeah. faster than any other case on that court docket, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Okay, so three to six weeks, unless there's a little bit of a hijacking for a descent, could be eight weeks on the on the outside. And we think uh, that they'll find two to one probably in both cases for the house, uh, I think. And this is just based purely on speculation and what has happened in, in the past. I know that, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is the allotted justice to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and I think that the the circuit courts may not issue stays uh, for this, and if not, I think Roberts would probably grant a small limited one in order to give Trump a week or so to file his cert uh, with the Supreme Court. I want everyone to know this isn't the end. This still has to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, but I think it would be in the, the correct timeline to still be heard in March uh, in which we would get those decisions in the June-July time frame. Do you see anything uh, wrong with that sort of a prediction? I mean, we I know you don't like to make predictions, but that's sort of <laughs> where I think this is going to end up. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think you could push to um, oral argument before the Supreme Court in April. Um, But but I think that a decision coming out later than July is pretty highly unlikely. So, yeah, I think, you know, you're looking at June, July as outside dates for all of the really bad stuff falling on Trump's head. And I know people think, oh, you know, that's forever. And and we just can't wait three more months or six more months or however many more months it is each time we have to wait.
1: Yes, we can, because Trump isn't going to be removed between now and then. If we had it all today, you know, it's. You know, people seem to like conflate impeachment with removal and and that this is urgent. We have to do it now or else something bad will happen. But no one can really articulate what the bad thing is, is that, that, that's going to happen.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, you've got to remove Trump from office. And so if the only if the if the soonest time you can do that is July, mm-hmm. then do it in July. If the soonest time is August, then do it in August. But I mean, the, the, you have to determine what is the earliest date on which I can I can make such a compelling case that I will remove him from office. That date looks like it's probably going to be in the you know, June time frame.
1: Yep. And uh, all five of those cases you mentioned are the Cy Vance-Mazar's case, the House-Mazar's case, the House Deutsche Bank case, and then, of course, the two that were just heard in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the McGann subpoena and the Mueller grand jury's material case. So I just wanted to give everyone a quick overview of what we're waiting for. Uh, and the articles still have not been sent to the Senate um, for, you know, their quick acquittal. Uh, and we'll we'll see how this all plays out. It's going to be very interesting. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us again, everybody, Uncle Blazer. Follow him on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? At
2: Blake's Mustache.
1: Great. Thanks so much. And Happy New Year again. Thanks for coming back. Thanks. Happy New Year. All right. Thanks so much for that interview with Uncle Blazer. Are you ready for Sabotage? I am. I am. All right, get this. Two senior officials say that Eric Prince has been referred to the United States Treasury for possible sanctions violations for a recent trip to Venezuela. Uh, Eric Prince is a former Blackwater asshole, brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, and he served as the Trump proxy for a meeting in the Seychelles with proxies for Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, namely Dmitriev and George Nader. Uh, Apparently, he recently trotted down to Venezuela and met a top aide to Maduro. Uh, This, as support for opposition leader Juan Guaido, appears to be waning. Now, we did a huge report before the holiday, and I hope you remember this, about a loan Venezuela took out against Citgo, its oil company, when Maduro was in charge. And since everyone now recognizes Guaido as the president, that loan should be defunct, right? And our Treasury Department could have called it as such, because if the loan went into default, Venezuela would lose Citgo to Russia. Then we learned about Giuliani trotting off to Spain, staying with Venezuelans, rich guys. And and then when this Eric Prince story hit, I said, 100 percent, this has to do with Rudy. Hundred percent. And then, bam, 24 hours later, we get the headline, Trump's lawyer and the Venezuelan president, how Giuliani got involved in back channel talks with Maduro. (laughs) Um, The Washington Post says in September, Maduro had a call with Giuliani and Pete Sessions. Sounds familiar. Yeah, that guy. Uh, Both part of the shadow diplomatic effort in Mm -hmm. Ukraine backed in part by private interests aimed at easing Maduro from power and reopening Venezuela to business with the United States. So this sounds an awful lot like the personal interest shit that happened with Giuliani and Rick Perry and Pete Sessions in Ukraine with Mm -hmm. Naftagas. Remember, they were trying to kick out uh, their CEO and um, then install their own CEO. And uh, or board, you know, director or the board of directors there. And both of those guys, the ones that they asked to install and the one they tried to kick out, have just recently um, talked to the FBI uh, about this. So that's under investigation. Mm. Giuliani's willingness to speak to Maduro flew in the face of White House positions under Bolton. Um, that was then they were then ratcheting up sanctions against Venezuela and Venezuelan government. Giuliani met with Bolton to discuss an off the books plan to ease Maduro from office. And Bolton said. Fuck you, dude. No, we aren't doing that. And so now Eric Prince is now talking about this same thing because uh, obviously they want—you know—they have business interests, oil business interests. They want to profit off of this, and mm-hmm. they and they want to ease Maduro out of office so that mm-hmm. they have a, they can reopen this business with Venezuela. And it's it's especially a quote unquote good time for them to do this because support for Guaido is is waning. But he's still recognized as Absolutely. the current president. Yeah, hundred <sighs> percent.
3: I'm, I'm looking at an article right now from the Hill about this, and it says: uh, before traveling to Venezuela as a private citizen, Eric Prince received clear legal guidance, which he scrupulously followed. Mm. Mm.
1: <laughs> oh, fuck the Hill. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, but if you if you can look up, if you have a chance to read the article about. Venezuela's mm-hmm. default loan on Sitco and how it all was going to go to Rosneft mm-hmm. uh, you know Russia and also, Daripaska we talked about this in detail and it was it was it was um it was, Mnuchin, it was Steve mm-hmm. who helped lift Steve. the sanctions on Daripaska mm-hmm. and it was Steve who could have prevented the loan going into default and having Sitco go over to Daripaska mm-hmm. do you think he was going to do that? nah nah brah <laughs> So that's really huge. And mm-hmm. now you've got Eric Prince and mm-hmm. Giuliani and Pete Sessions mm-hmm. trotting down to Venezuela to set up their business interests there. I'm surprised Rick Perry hasn't been brought up on this. Uh, you he's know. too busy doing Dancing with the Stars. No, he's finished. He he's lost. <laughs> he lost his ass on this little Skippy Dancing with the Ta- Stars thing. But Rick Perry was heavily involved in the Ukraine yep. shakedown stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm surprised... He's also not down in Venezuela trying to give him a list of super Rick Perry donors to put on boards of gas companies in Venezuela that he could, you know, possibly benefit from.
3: So what is the official White House position on this currently? What's Mike Pompeo's position on this currently? Hasn't said. Right. Conveniently.
1: Yeah, we won't know because at one point, of course, it's in their interest to ease off on Maduro. Mm -hmm. But it's the global it's in the global best interest to recognize Guaido. So. Mm -hmm. And if, if they get caught allowing a loan default from a defunct president, mm-hmm. a non-legit president that gives an entire oil company that is one of the backbones of Venezuela's economy to Russia, which a company that they also helped lift sanctions so that they could do business with, that doesn't look good. That's not a good look. But you can't put that on bumper sticker. So no one's going <laughs> to no one's going to do that, although we will try.
3: I know. <sighs> You know what, though? I think that's actually, like, honest to God, Democrats need some, like, angry fucking bumper stickers for 2020. Mm-hmm. I mean, hope and change is good. It's all good. But um, people people are riled up b- by fitting angry
1: shit onto a bumper sticker. I know. I know. <laughs> we got to think of some. We will. Yeah. All right. So that's Sabotage. You ready to play Fantasy Indictment League? I am. I'm going to be indicted. No, it is going to be a... Indicted! Oh, honey, dick. Indicted!
5: Hi. Are you
1: Hold it. they can, it's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be tired. I get to go first this time and I'm picking Giuliani. Nice. Um I'm going to go. I'm going to start off with Giz, uh, Gizlane. Gisline. Lap in the I'm going to start off with her. I'm going to go with Merrick Prince because of this new thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with, hmm, Fruman. Oh, Fruman. Superseding Fruman? Yes. Okay, I'm going to go plea agreement, uh, Parnas. Mm-hmm.
3: You still think that he's going to go for a plea agreement?
1: Well, he's now got, uh, a uh, permission from a federal judge this past Friday to hand over, uh, some more documents to the House Intelligence Committee, so he seems willing to cooperate to me. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Um, i'm gonna go with trump inaugural
1: good one how about hey Giuliani prince you did maxwell um bah 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 bah. mm Brody. mm-hmm
3: Hmm. (laughs) Trying to decide here. Who do I want? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think who has a good chance right now. (laughs) Make my points count. Um, I'm going to steal Jordan's favorite, Barrick.
1: Barrick. Tom Barrick Mm -hmm. from the the inaugural. And I'll I'll go with an inaugural Mm -hmm. person to Walcroft. And that'll be my last pick. Mm -hmm. Who's yours?
3: My last pick. Mm-mm-mm-mm. i'm gonna go with a rando russian
1: all right mm-hmm Taking a page out, a couple pages out of Jordan's playbook. She's not here, so I can steal her strategy. Sorry, Tits McGee. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you guys, we'll be right back with the interview. And this is a big one. You may have heard our friends at Forensic News Net, where Scott Stedman works, broke a story about Russian ties to Trump loans through Deutsche Bank, a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank, uh, uh, using a Russian bank called VTB. Uh, I speak with the author of that article um, right after this break. You won't want to miss it. Stick around. Hey everybody, this segment of Muller She Wrote is brought to you by Noemi. If you've ever shopped for jewelry for a gift or, or for yourself, you know it can be astronomically expensive. But Noemi believes that luxury jewelry doesn't have to be overpriced. They cut out the middleman to deliver exceptional fine jewelry without the traditional retail markups. Noemi designs and manufactures everything in-house and sells directly to consumers with a lifetime warranty and free shipping both ways. So you can save an average of 50% compared to other luxury brands. Uh, Authenticity is guaranteed with IGI certificate detail and color clarity and appraisal value. You can personalize with engravings and even order custom designs. And you can return any order for a full refund, even engravings and custom designs. It's literally entirely risk-free. You can even use flexible payment options with no hidden costs and no extra charges. And all of their jewelry is conflict free. So read the thousands of five-star reviews on their website and see for yourself. Uh, I got um, a a ring. It's like a friendship uh, rose gold ring with all different colored stones in it and some diamonds. Um, uh, praise retail value is over like two grand for this I got it at 490. So, uh and there's uh, this great personalized necklace that I have my eye on too, retail value 3800 at Noemi starts at $390 it's just so affordable and so wonderful so if you're looking for fine quality jewelry made to last a lifetime from a luxury brand you can trust, it's Noemi uh, again they have thousands of five star reviews online, we suggest you read some and see why people are raving about this company, go to hellonoemi.com ag to see their collections and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code AG. That's H-E-L-L-O, hello, Noemi, N-O-E-M-I-E dot com slash AG. And don't forget to use promo code AG for $50 off your first purchase. You'll be glad you did. So joining us today for the interview is Duke law student and forensic news legal analyst and researcher Robert Denault. Robert, welcome to Mueller She Wrote.
5: Ah, Thank you so much, AG. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, this is going to be great. I know that we've spoken to Scott uh, on a couple of occasions, so I'm I'm happy to have you here. And on Friday, you published an article on Forensic News Net that, that, and again, that's also where um, past guest Scott Stedman uh, writes for for them and does research for for that group as well. And this article was called Trump's Deutsche Bank loans underwritten by Russian state-owned bank, whistleblower told FBI. So first of all, can you tell us what Russian bank this is uh, that co-signed these loans?
5: Sure. So the Russian bank at issue here is VTB Bank. Um, VTB is the second largest state-owned bank in Russia. Um, It's majority owned by the Russian government, 60 percent owned by the Kremlin. Um, And VTB, you know, your listeners might remember it um, as the proposed financer for the Trump Tower Moscow deal that uh, Michael Cohen pled guilty to lying to Congress about. Um, In his proffer uh, in that case, he acknowledged that they were told in January 2016 that VTB was going to be the financer of that deal. Um, So they've certainly been in the press. There's also been reporting that VTB was uh, the primary financer behind the Rosneft privatization deal that Christopher Steele talked a bit about in his widely discussed dossier. Mm -hmm. Um, So VTB, you know, very well-connected, powerful Russian bank. Um, and it's also the target of sanctions by the U.S. government.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you I'm, I, about that. I'm pretty sure they're sanctioned. And Rosneft, the Rosneft deal you're talking about, uh, they help broker that with uh, the Cutter Investment Authority, and we've been sort of speculating on the show here that that, One of those entities is the state-owned entity that is connected to the Mueller subpoena battle that's been sort of—we haven't really heard anything about it since June, but it's that secret company from Country A that does business in the United States and is is a uh, state-owned bank. And so I think— uh, VTB was always our second guess for that, uh, VTB, VEB, but our, our first guess would be QIA. But they both had their hands in that Rosneft sell-off. And I know that uh, I think half a percent uh, commission is just hasn't been accounted for, at least not publicly. So that's a, always an interesting transaction as well.
5: Yeah. And it's interesting, too. There's been a lot of smoke and mirrors about the Rosneft deal um VTB was not publicly acknowledged as the the you know primary lender or financer behind that deal they tried to use an italian bank and sort of were just very opaque about who exactly where those funds were coming from but now it's been pretty widely reported that VTB was actually the source of a lot of the funds um so it's sort of interesting to think about and whether that mystery subpoena, you know we obviously talked a, <laughs> a bit in this reporting about you know as we were writing the story whether that was something we all thought. We have differences of opinion on that. So, you know, we'll see. I don't know.
1: Who do you think it is?
5: In my opinion, I mean, I think it's pretty likely uh, that it is a VTB-related entity or some sort of Russian bank. I mean, I think the Qatari Investment Authority, it's just different. It's, it's not really a bank, and there's been some very interesting language about the subpoena. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, it's, it seems to me that the Qatari Investment authority is more like a hedge fund type entity. So I don't know. But we, uh, we don't think it's VTB for, for a couple reasons. It's not wholly owned by the Russian government. It's only 60% owned. And there are some legal documents in that case that suggest whatever entity is fighting the Sabina is wholly owned. So I think your guess at VEB could be a, a, better, uh, a better guess.
1: Yeah, well, um, maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. Uh, it could be on hold for any number of nefarious reasons. Uh, and, you know, like I said, we haven't heard anything about it since June. Uh, and and back to this article that you wrote, we know a while back, Lawrence O'Donnell made made a similar claim on his show, The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, saying that an oligarch had co-signed the loans. and And then he quickly redacted his story. Um, and, you know, obviously, if, whether it's VTB or an oligarch, because I'm sure an oligarch has a lot to do with how VTB is run. But um, he he made this he, he had this quick redaction uh, and you had quite a response to your story when it was published. Tell us a couple of things that happened after your story came out.
5: Sure. So, I mean, of course, we were conscious of the Lawrence story <clears throat> that had been retracted. We do have uh, pretty Strong reason to believe our sourcing and Lawrence's sourcing were different. Um, so you know, we're not really in the same position Lawrence was. And so I think it's important to note, Lawrence didn't wasn't retracting the claim because it was false, but rather, you know it hadn't gone through whatever NBC's vetting standards um, were. And so I think it was just sort of a premature on his part, story release. Um, but for us, you know, we base this on very different sourcing, Um, And as soon as we published on Friday, within 30 minutes, our site was encountering serious technological issues. And then within a few hours, we had hired an outside firm to come in and look at it. Um, And they confirmed that it was a malicious cyber attack. So, a lot of readers, you know, as this was getting traction, it was number eight at some point on trending worldwide on Twitter, but people couldn't read the actual article. So, we had to turn to Scribd and just put a transcription of the article, which I think had something like 20,000 shares itself. Not even our primary (laughs) article was, you know, being shared that much. Um, But, yeah, we're trying to get to the bottom of exactly what happened with the cyber attack. It was definitely frustrating. And then... You know, we do some of our operations with PayPal and with no explanation, our PayPal accounts were shut down, closed, we were booted off. Um, And then by last night, we were allowed back on uh, with no explanation for why that happened. So pretty weird, pretty weird sequence of (laughs) events.
1: Yeah. And and I know that it's been retweeted by Lawrence Tribe. And, you know, we put it out there. It's gotten a lot of attention. And and speaking of your sourcing, because you were saying that you're pretty sure you have different sourcing than the Lawrence O'Donnell uh, story. And that's also what I gathered when I spoke to Uh, your source. Tell us about your source.
5: So Val uh, is not a bank official. His father, uh, the late Bill Smith, was um, the chief risk optimization officer, and he worked at DBTCA, which we'll get into in a a couple minutes, but this branch subsidiary in New York uh, of Deutsche Bank. Um, So Val, uh, not a banker, not a finance guy. Um, His father, unfortunately, uh, committed suicide back in 2014. And when he did, Val gained access to lots of his files, emails, accounts, and lots of things that he had retained over his years working at the bank. And I think Val, in in looking through the documents, sort of wanted to get to the bottom of exactly what had happened. You know, Bill was his stepfather, but I think he really viewed him as a father figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in digging through it, he came across really sensitive and explosive internal documents from Deutsche Bank and this branch subsidiary DPTCA, um, and he immediately, you know, upon sort of piecing together, contacted the FBI as early as 2016, uh, letting them know, you know, sort of pleading with them to meet with him about these files. And uh, over the past few years, he's met with journalists, law enforcement congressional investigators uh, to discuss exactly what, you know, these documents contain.
1: Yeah. And there's also a lot of uh, attacks on him. Um, uh, I, and I assume it's kind of like, it seems like anybody who has this kind of information is going to be a target. Um, and and you said in the article that you cannot confirm the underlying claim that VTB underwrote Trump's loans from Deutsche Bank, but that you can confirm some of Trump's loans were issued by a bank subsidiary with ties to VTB, and that's the, the DBTCA you were talking about. Tell us a little bit about DBTCA. So
5: understanding Deutsche Bank, you know, it's a global bank based out of Germany. It's actually Germany's largest bank. Um, it's headquartered there, but that, that's their primary company. is called Deutsche Bank AG. Now, they have offices all over the world, but in New York, they have several subsidiaries. There's a Deutsche Bank AG New York office and then several subgroups. Um, DBTCA is one subgroup of the, of the main bank, but it's, you know, has about 700 employees. It's fairly small compared to, you know, I think Deutsche Bank has around 10,000 in the United States, most, most of which are in New York. So, you know, this sort of smaller branch that does commercial lending, private banking, wealth management, that kind of thing is all being done at this DBTCA where Val's father was working. Um, and around 2010, Donald Trump, who had gotten lots of his real estate loans from another division of the bank, the commercial real estate division, which was done in an entirely separate entity, um, wouldn't work with him anymore. They had had a pretty horrible legal battle. He defaulted on a $640 million loan, countersued them for $2 billion for causing the financial (laughs) crisis, So they didn't want to work with him anymore for obvious reasons. Um, and In sort of an unheard-of turn of events, Trump was able to move to this DBTCA division and ask them for a loan to pay off a court-ordered liability to the other division of the bank. And, And it was sort of the beginning of a sequence of events as we sort of pieced together exactly what was this funding relationship between DBTCA, Donald Trump, And the rest of the bank, uh, it's sort of something to keep in mind. How on earth were they able to guarantee or back these loans to pay off other liabilities to the exact same bank? Um, So he was using this DBTCA subsidiary after 2012, 2013, um, Trump was. And all of his loans since then have, have come from DBTCA.
1: Well, I do that all the time. I'll borrow money from a bank and then borrow money from a subsidiary with a bank to pay off the bank. I mean, I do, I, you know, I do it all the time. So, <laughs> You know, it's like one of those
5: things where I think people say this is so complex to understand. But most Americans know you can't take out, you know, a mortgage from one bank, and then when you can't pay it off, just take out a, a different one and be able to pay it, you know, scot-free. It really doesn't work that way. Um, and after six bankruptcies, it really doesn't work that way. So
1: yeah, and of course we have Eric Trump around that time saying, "Oh, we get all of our free money from Russia. It just all comes from Russia." Exactly.
5: <laughs> right. Right. So. And so then, of course, important to note. You know, as we say in the article, DBTCA is where this VTB relationship is existing as well. And so that's sort of where we thought this is really newsworthy.
1: So that's sort of the documentary evidence you have, not not necessarily like signed off uh, letters showing that VTB underwrote these loans, but this relationship between DBTCA and the Trumps.
5: Right. And how interesting that this, you know, it had been publicly reported in the Wall Street Journal that. Deutsche Bank had a a longstanding credit relationship, commercial lending relationship, with this VTB bank. But it wasn't reported that, you know, DBTCA was the source of that relationship. And it is a bit strange that a German bank would not go through its main office, you know, or, or sort of even the New York office that was regular Deutsche Bank and not this subsidiary DBTCA. Now, that could be explained by, you know, maybe the commercial lending relationship was unique to DBTCA or something like that. But to have all of this operation be working through this 700-person subsidiary where you have this big commercial lending between VTB and DBTCA, and we have later documents that show it seems there was correspondent banking happening, which suggests a really close relationship between DBTCA and VTB. And then to have the sourcing that there are, people claiming on the record that they have information that the loans were underwritten. It's really pretty strong.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the the big picture connection sort of scheme here has to do with money laundering, at least part of it, because we know, you know, Trump gets these loans, uh, which are now, you know, could be funded by Russia, as far as we as far as we can see here, and then buys out many condos and real estate to these russian shell companies and and oligarchs and then you know gets other people to buy into the building and then they get resold and then perhaps to purchase other condos to you know just to launder money real estate and of course golf courses are are sort of havens for this sort of money laundering activity and we know also that sinfen has red flagged a lot of this stuff already all these tra- all these real estate transactions
5: right and at some point it's just that there's so much smoke it becomes sort of irresponsible not to report some of this stuff. And and I think that's where we all, you know, in reviewing this evidence, and we did have a team-wide discussion, even including our forensic news employees that didn't write the article, about what we thought was newsworthy, whether we thought, you know, we should be going forward with it. And it was pretty consensus that there's definitely newsworthiness here. Um, And I think it's strange that You know, organizations like the New York Times have known about some of these claims and just sat on them. You know, they're trying to sell a book about Deutsche Bank in February. And so, you know, it just seems odd to me that we would, you know, not be reporting something this serious and all these ties when there's already been so much reporting about suspicious transactions, LLC purchases, Russian connections, the entire Mueller investigation. It's just crazy to think that you wouldn't report on this kind of stuff.
1: Well, that book deal you mentioned—that's coming out from uh, something that was also sourced uh, by Val, uh, and and so you know, kind of reminds me of Bolton not testifying in the impeachment inquiry because he's got a book that's right. going to be coming out. So, I mean, you know, you could right. you can make speculative, you know, guess all you want, be speculative about why they've been sitting on this reporting, but that could be it. Um, uh, but you know, I don't want to yeah. make any—I don't want to make any—I don't have any, you know, sources that say that that's. True, but you know you, you have to ask that question. It's
5: certainly speculative to ask the question. Um, I think though, uh, where it bothers me at least, you know the person who's author of this book, <clears throat> David Enrich, he you know tweeted yesterday that he was unable to confirm this and and he wasn't sure if it was true or not. The truth is, though, the New York Times has done lots of reporting about what witnesses have told law enforcement in in investigations. We saw it in how they reported on the obstruction investigation into President Trump. There was story after story about what a witness told them. It wasn't about whether obstruction was proved. It was just newsworthy that a witness was giving testimony or giving information to law enforcement. That's what we've reported here. And so I'm just it sort of seems odd to me that they take the gloves off in this situation. I, 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 don't understand it.
1: So, yeah, uh,
5: and we found Val to be very credible and, and back up his, you know, a lot of his assertions with documentary evidence. And, and so, you know, we didn't see any reason not to, not to go forward with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know also now that, I mean, you guys reported back in August that the house confirmed they were conducting a money laundering investigation into Trump and his family. And, and, you know, maybe these are connected.
5: Yeah. I mean, I, so I wrote that report and, um, you know, Deutsche Bank has been very much the focus of my work at forensic news, and and I do think these are probably connected. We know that there has been uh, information exchanged between Val and Congress, um, and you know, one thing that we talked a lot about in this discussion, and as we wrote this article is that bankers aren't stupid, right? So there's not gonna be some email that says, oh, you know, here's our scheme to underwrite all of the Trump loans with Russian money. You're really gonna need experts who can piece together this puzzle, which is going to usually probably include tons of different kinds of documents and and all that stuff. If anything, our reporting from Friday really bolsters the House's case for why it needs these documents, because no one can give a straight answer. No one can come out and explain exactly whether this is true or whether it's not. And Deutsche Bank denies it, but won't make any of its executive available for comment, you know. And so we hope that the House gets to the bottom of it. I would say this is definitely connected to the House's investigation.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for your reporting um, and putting this out there. Can you tell our listeners where uh, they can find you and this report?
5: Yeah, so you can find me uh, at Robert J. Denault on Twitter. Um, and this report is available on forensicnews.net. It will be on our front page for quite a while, I imagine. Um, and uh, please read it. You know, it's dense. It's a lot to understand, but we have a lot of great documentary evidence. And it's important for, I think, it, people interested in this subject, but also regular citizens and voters to get engaged on this issue because Whether or not someone was, you know, basically getting billions of dollars of access uh, because loans were backed by a foreign country goes to the core of whether we're being governed by people who have our best interests at heart. So I really strongly encourage people to read it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 100 percent. Thank you so much. So everyone, a Duke law student, class of 2021, you'll be eligible for your JD in 21 uh, and uh, forensic news, legal analyst and researcher for Forensic News Net. Everybody, Robert Denault, thanks again for coming on Mueller, She Wrote.
5: Thanks so much, AG. Great talking to you.
1: All right, everybody, that's our show. First show of the new year, first show of 2020. Um, it's going to be a crazy year. It is going to be a crazy year. Uh, who would have thought In when we started this in, in, in October of 2017 that there would still be relevant Mueller news <laughs> and enough of it to fill an hour and a half at least each week? Um, so stick with us. We're going to keep covering it. Mm-hmm. And um, if you want to uh, get more stuff about maybe the election and things like that and, and more detail about the impeachment stuff, we're we're also following that. And our sister podcast, The Daily Beans, that comes out daily in mm-hmm. the mornings, um, the night before, if you're a patron, we give it to you ad free and early. If you're a patron, you can become a patron of both podcasts at MullerSheWrote.com or Patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote. Um, And all that um, money and support goes to, first of all, supporting women in podcasting, but it also goes to paying super high wages and giving health benefits and 401k benefits to our employees, even the part-timers. So please check it out um, and support us. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, I don't have any final thoughts uh, today. Do you have anything? Just just keep smiling,
3: y'all. Like, you know, I hope you got some respite over Christmas, but... you know stay optimistic even in the shit storm and fucking vote and keep your head up and we're going to get through this year together yes is my first final thought of the new year
1: it's going to be a hard year but it's going to be a very good year yes it is going to be a good year because we okay. have each other nothing uh nothing wonderful comes easy mm-mm. and we're going to learn that this year <laughs> so you know what we're going to band together and make shit happen so stick with us um we'll help you through it uh and please take care of yourselves and take care of each other i've been ag i've been amanda reader and this is muller she wrote Muller She Wrote is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn, with engineering and editing by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, production and social media direction is by Amanda Reader. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reader, and our knowledgeable listeners. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reader with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is mullersherote.com.
4: Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right. The boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show.